Welcome to Bible Study. It's very good to be with you again. My name is Nick Kurita and I'm your host. It's amazing uh, to see how um, quick times pass by because we are um, coming almost to the end of this wonderful book, Revelation, which we are studying together for the last uh, couple of months. And uh, I encourage you again to pick up the Bible, open it at, in the book of Revelation, and be with us as we are uh, starting today to study a very interesting topic again in this book. It will be about judgment upon Babylon. But before that, I would like to welcome our panel. And I'll start with Lydia because we miss you a couple of weeks. Lydia, thank you for joining us again. Uh, I would like to thank God for the privilege of being here again. It's wonderful to study the Bible. And thank you, Helen, for coming with us on this uh, Bible study. Thank you. Yes, glad to be here. Ken. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Nick. Thank you for joining us, Ken. And Brenton? Yes, it's uh, very nice to be here again and to be able to share the Word of God with those who are listening. In a different seat today, but uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, but I will go to Len uh, now, who is facilitating uh, this Bible study. And Len, thank you very much for uh, the preparation and um, welcome to the program. I will uh, hand the microphone right to you now. Hello, listeners. This week we are studying the topic called Judgment on Babylon. Last week's Bible study was about the plagues that will come upon those who choose to reject God's grace. The plagues will come just before Jesus comes again to take his people back with him to heaven. It will be a terrible time on earth. This week we're going to try to explain what the Bible says about the world powers that exist at the time just prior to when the plagues are unleashed. When the plagues come, there will be no forgiveness as Jesus will no longer be interceding for repentant sinners. As a panel, we urge you to make your peace with God now. Later might be too late. Ken, would you like to pray for us as we present this program and for the listeners as they listen? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we're so grateful to have this wonderful opportunity to warn of the times we live in and the soon return of Jesus. This is a very serious time for the world and a very important time for every single person in this world. They need to turn and look into the Word of God, look into accepting Jesus as their saviour because as Len has just said time is very short mm -hmm. and you may not get another opportunity we just pray Heavenly Father for all the listeners each and every one of them that they take these things into their heart and check them out in the name of Jesus Amen mm -hmm. Amen. I just want to say before we begin that as a panel we read the Word of God, we try to understand the Word of God with sincerity, and we present the Word of God as best we know it. Sometimes things are a bit mysterious, but we're going to share with you today what we believe is truth. Helen, would you like to commence this study today by reading Revelation chapter 17, the first two verses? Yes, love to. 
I'm reading from the Life Application Bible and it says in Revelation 17, 1 and 2, One of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. Okay, so here this uh, an announcement is made or an invitation is made. Who gave it? The angels of the plagues. Yes, one of the angels who was to administer mm-hmm. the plagues. So the seventh this angel. Is, mm. Yes, okay. And what was the, um, at least in the beginning, what was the angel going to show John in this revelation, I suppose we'd best call it? Yeah, it's going to show John the judgment of this um, great prostitute. Not the power so much, but the judgment, what was going to happen. All right, Mm. so in those verses it it mentions what the prostitute is actually doing. Ruling over many waters, for a start, and it also says that there are the kings of the world have actually committed adultery with her. Okay. So the the word that I would like us to focus on is sits. Mm-hmm. She sits as if we could say as enthroned over, which shows the power that yes. she has, and and that what she sits on is actually supporting her. Yeah. Just to uh, mention that uh, a woman again represents a church, and sitting on many waters. Also, we understand from previous studies that means multitudes of people. And interesting enough that we can identify this power by even simply uh, do the research and find out that this denomination is the most spread in the world, which means has an influence in all parts of the world. There are many religions and there will be, you know, bigger or smaller uh, in number, but this power, it's, as Len puts it, controls, if you like, through the teachings, the entire world. Let's just um, revise here. On whom does she sit? Uh, verse 15 answers it, where it says, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw, where the harlot sits, are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. All right. In other words, the influence of this religious system is worldwide. I was just going to mention, when I studied into this chapter and about the great prostitute, I was reminded of the time of Elijah when Jezebel was known as a most evil woman and um, how she ruled, you know, and she had this power over people. And it also reminded me later on that she wouldn't repent and neither does this power. And we're going to find that out as we go mm. through. It says a great prostitute. Yes. Yeah. Now, Ken, when Helen read those first two verses, the beginning of verse 2 talks about the kings of the earth. I'll just uh, reiterate that. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. The inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Who are the kings of the earth, Ken? Well, the kings of the earth are all the governments and nations and peoples whom this power exercises control over or influence over. So it's most of the governments of the world, if not all the governments of the world. Okay. 
So really, the kings of the earth is talking about nations and, and governments. Yes. Lydia, in what sense are the earth's inhabitants drunk or intoxicated by her wine? So we are studying chapter 17 in uh, Revelation. I'm going to read uh, Revelation chapter 17 verse 2 and it says that with her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So the symbol of wine symbolizes the teachings, the philosophies and worldwide false teachings. Uh, the fact that um, all the earth's inhabitants were drunk and intoxicated by her wine, it means that they accepted false teachings and philosophies and uh, spiritual perceptions were um, denaturated. So it's about the false teachings. I find the word intoxicated or drunk very interesting in this setting. It seems very much to me that the influence is so great that people have put aside their normal reasoning, their uh, regard for human rights. It's, it's almost as if they can't see through it or not prepared to do what is right in the situation. Yes, so the word intoxicated describes exactly when a person is intoxicated with wine, he doesn't think properly in his brain. Mm. Being intoxicated, it means that you don't realize what is the reality around you. So you don't understand exactly the, the real truth. Yeah, that's a good answer. I Many, some of you here haven't experienced much uh, the effects of alcohol in your life, but I did. And uh, for a number of years, and I know how bad it is when you are under that uh, influence, and you are very easily manipulated. You know, you can be set up very easily for uh, all sorts of uh, things which are totally unreasonable. <laughs> and that's what we, we need to pay attention to these uh, scriptures here to understand that there are a lot of people under that spiritual drunkenness, if you like, and it's worth it to go back to the source, to the Bible, rather than to be influenced by any power, any influential power in this world, even though it's spiritual or political or social and so on. I think I've mentioned on the air once before, I one time went to a... Um, South Australian football match, SA, NFL. NFL. It was the first and only time I ever did this. And people were yelling out all sorts of things, the umpire, and do you know what? After all, I found myself doing it. <laughs> and later on I thought about it, and I thought, you silly fool. You didn't need to yell out any obscenities or anything like that to the umpire just because others were doing it. And it's a bit like that. It's almost like crowd hysteria, that everybody's doing it because everybody's doing it, not because it's right. I'd just like to add to that, Len, again, uh, something Nick has said, that you must go back to the source. You cannot trust in men and things that you hear from them or the churches. You must go back to the Word of God and seek the truth in that. 
Len, I think we've missed an important point in verse 2. It says, with her, it mentions two things. It says, with whom the kings of the earth uh, committed fornication. The fornication it's referring to is spiritual adultery. Now, in the New Testament, particularly in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ is referred to the, as the bridegroom and his church as the bride because the political systems of the world have united with the religious system, you have spiritual adultery. Instead of being faithful to her bridegroom, Christ, they are intermingling and doing whatever they want amongst themselves. And so you, you have a problem there. The I think we've covered the intoxication issue fairly well, but the problem is there that you just... The more confused you become the less rational your decisions are and the more easily you are manipulated by some powerful organisation, um, spiritual entity or whatever that comes along. Uh, all right. Well, to add to that, uh, Brenton, would you like to read mm. Revelation I chapter 17, will. the third <coughs> uh, uh, verse? Here is where jo- the actual vision begins. It says this, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Okay. Now, it's interesting here that John, in vision, is carried away to a desert or a wilderness. Mm-hmm. It's just an interchangeable word. What could, what's, the, what's the symbolism or what's the significance of that? It could refer to two things, Len. It could refer to a area of the world that is, shall we say, less densely populated. Uh, by comparison, you think of Revelation 13 and the second beast. However, I think more specifically, it's relating to wilderness in a spiritual sense. I will make a comparison with chapter 12 of Revelation and verse 1, where it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labour and in pain to give birth. The true woman is described as representing being in heaven. The false woman is represented as being in the wilderness. So you can see the stark contrast between the two. All right. In thinking about this, I thought the alternative meaning the fact that that the desert might refer to the fact of a place where there is very little godliness and very little truth now i'm not hard and fast on that it's just an idea that Mm -hmm. popped into my mind and another application if i could uh, mention just think of the experience of israel in the desert god was intending to bring them into the canaan a short, in a short trip, let's say, rather than uh, mm-hmm. 40 years. But because of their unbelief. unbelief, because of their change of attitude towards God, they were in the wilderness. Now think of this in comparison with this prostitute, with this system, who come before God in their own righteousness, if you like. The comparison between Israel in the desert and this power, it's so phenomenal. Okay. Well, now you read, Brenton, where the prostitute sat. 
Um, before you tell us, Helen's got something she's eager to share. She has. Yeah, I was thinking about this experience in the wilderness. The angel took John out there, and to me it was like there's no distractions. You can see what the prostitute is, what she's doing in reality, you mm. know, that it was a clearer perception. And I think sometimes that for me is a lesson that at times I need to come away from things to go into my wilderness with the Lord to see what is actually going on, see the bigger picture. Yes. Okay, so just reiterate what you read from the verse, Brenton. Where is this prostitute pictured Mm. as sitting? Uh, She's pictured, Len, as sitting on a scarlet beast. And then it describes the scarlet beast having full of the names of blasphemy, having said seven heads and ten horns. The suggestion of sitting on it means in control of or um, directing, if you wish. And uh, blasphemy is particularly interesting because we know from a few lessons ago that some of the definitions of blasphemy found in the Bible are the claim to be able to forgive sins and the claim to be in the place of God. So you have some definitions of what blasphemy is. And just another one uh, in, important thinking about riding the beast. Mm-hmm. Now, as you just said, is in control. Mm. As one which I used to break horses, I can tell you one thing. That you will be in control of that horse when he allows you to be in control. But only then. Because otherwise you wouldn't be in control. Mm. And yeah. what's yeah. important here, because th- this dragon, you know, which I believe it's Satan, allows this woman to write okay well nick's kind of um stepped in and she he's described what this beast is but in prophecy a beast refers to a power yes yes it does. okay helen uh i know brenton sort of referred to this too but it's good to hear it again what's this beast like Okay. Well, we've noticed that the beast is scarlet. It's covered in blasphemous names. And I found that part interesting. Mm. Not just a blasphemous name on its head, but it is full of the whole thing, Mm. which I thought about that. And to me, it was full of blasphemy. In other words, wholly devoted to the objective that it had. You know, this Mm. completely full of blasphemy. I mean, that's, that's just evil isn't it? And also the beast had seven heads and ten horns. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to read something that we were talking about before that in Bible prophecy beasts commonly represent political powers. But the colour of this beast may intimate that it is the epitome of evil as the names of blasphemy with which it is covered indicate it stands in opposition to God. Accordingly, the beast itself may be identified as Satan working through those political agencies in all ages that have submitted to his control. In certain respects, this beast resembles the great red dragon of chapter 12, verse 3, and in others, the leopard-like beast of chapter 13, 1 and 2, which we have studied Mm -hmm. before. The context makes the latter relationship appear to be closer. The chief difference between the beast of chapter 13 and that of chapter 17 is that in the former, which is identified with the papacy, no distinction is made between the religious and the political aspects of papal powers, whereas in the latter the two are distinct, the beast representing a political power and the woman a religious power. Mm. That's correct. Okay, so this is very, very interesting. Now, Ken, coming back to this beast, it's been mentioned that it was covered in blasphemous names. Um, Could you just explain that a little more? Sure. 
The blasphemous names basically mean this power or conglomeration of powers assumes to act in place of or as God and is wholly devoted to its own objective. So in other words, it's not interested in actually doing the work of God or putting forth the word of God, but it has its own agenda and it's totally leading people astray and away from the word of God. Right. So in other words, it's it's setting itself up as God. Absolutely, yes. All right. Brenton, would you read Revelation chapter 17 and verse 4? And this describes the woman sitting on the beast. Certainly. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Okay. Now, can you perhaps explain that a little more? The scarlet and the purple are generally colours of royalty. And they also describe um, other religious systems that use these particular colours um, preeminently in what they do. I'm reminded, Len, as I look at this gold and precious stones and pearls, I'm, I'm reminded of a religious system that is drawing attention to itself. When I go back to what I read earlier about Revelation chapter 12, we find a woman clothed with the sun. She's plainly dressed. She's... Um, reflecting the glory of God. Here is a woman representing a corrupt religious system that merely reflects itself, whereas God's true church, God's true people, reflect him. Okay. Before you speak, Ledger, what was she wearing? She so was we observed here that this woman, the harlot, is pictured as extravagantly arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with ornaments of gold precious stones and pearls and such adornment was a practice of harlots in antiquity to enhance their power of seduction and as the color of blood scarlet corresponds to the oppressive character of this religion system okay she was wearing this expensive jewelry right mm. Mm. she was rich and she held in her hand a golden cup it was interesting what was in the cup. Poison, literally. Yeah, basically mm. poison. So really, to a casual observer, she looks wonderful. But I, I what she look. offers to drink is poison. Mm. So what, what she appears to be and what she offers are two different things. Mm. And that's a very good point, again, coming from a very traditional, um, you know, one of the churches back in Eastern Europe, which, uh, again, very pompous, you know, very fastless, uh, you know, dressed and so on. Uh, people are drawn to that, uh, their attention, not by the truth of what they're presenting. It's the pomp and ceremony. But absolutely. And it's amazing how many people are deceived just because of that thing. And I like what Lydia just said because that's actually the strategy of a harlot. You know, to capture the innocent. <laughs> to get the innocent to bite into, into her traps. Okay, Phil. I'm reminded of the Pharisees in the time of Jesus. You know, where people looked up to them and they were dressed, of course, in their 
robes and what have you. But it also reminds me of the, of what Jesus says, having the form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Len, I think it could go a bit further too. When we studied Revelation earlier on, we talked about a woman called Jezebel. Now, Jezebel, right at the end, before she met her death, decked herself out in gold and jewellery and all the rest of it and stood at the window and she was defiant to the very end. Here you have a power that is defying the living God, but we've missed a point altogether. The scarlet beast is scarlet, not only for what Lygia said. What does scarlet represent in scripture? It represents sin. So here is a religious system riding on a beast representing sin. Now, Christ's true church is the exact opposite of that. So here again you see a very clear delineation between the true church where she's clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and here you have a religious system riding on a beast that is described as being scarlet in colour and scarlet in scripture always represents sin. The concept actually (coughs) of her riding a beast denotes dominance Mm. Uh, and as the rider of the scarlet beast as we said this end-time religious system will dominate the secular and political powers. Uh, this, of course, happened in the past, too. It did. Yes, Ken? Yeah, I'd just like to add to that, that uh, if you look into the Word of God, we can see that the life of Jesus was a very simple life. He wasn't decked out in gold and jewelry, and here we have the Son of the living God on earth, and yet he led a very, very simple life, as did his disciples. So I think that's a bit of a, a comparison looking at uh, what was happening then and what's happening today. Mm. Now, Ledger, we read something rather remarkable in Revelation 17, verse 5. Not only is she dressed in that way with scarlet and purple and with all these expensive jewels, etc., etc., but she has some names on her forehead. Would you read Revelation 17:5, and then just after that uh, reiterate what those names are? Yes, in uh, chapter 17, verse 5, we read, This title was written on her forehead, Mystery, Babylon of the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes, and of the Abominations of the Earth. Okay, so just go through those again, those names. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Okay, now we'll come back to these shortly. Ken, would you read Revelation 17 verse 6? Just reading out the King James Version here. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. There's a lot of drunkenness going on here today. The, now we have a, uh, a reference to the fact that this woman was drunk with the blood of the saints. Now that brings about a, a big clue on how to identify the woman. First of all, Helen, who are the saints? Those that are obedient, those that bear their testimony of Jesus. I think Revelation fourteen twelve summed it up very well. You what know, does it say? Um, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. Yes. Okay. I'd, I'd just like to add a little thing there. I think it's important. It said it has the testimony of Jesus, 
that is the true testimony of Jesus because there's lots of people out there today that have um, the word of God but it's not the correct word and, and also on that uh, Ken will come uh, later on uh, on chapter 19 to understand even more about what that means the testimony of Jesus because it speaks about the spirit of prophecy and again the true spirit of prophecy because he can be a false prophet also yeah, I, I think it's about maintaining their faith, isn't it, in, in the righteousness of Jesus. And how do we do that? How do we ma- how to become part of that, that group, maintaining our faith? Well, that comes through our relationship with Jesus, the study of the word, praying, praying and witnessing, bearing that testimony. This is a very important thing that we are now talking about yes. because there is a movement to set aside true Christianity believing in Christ as our um, the one who redeems us, who forgives us of our sins there is another system which we will sort of allude to as we progress today. Brenton the first name that appeared on her head was mystery. Why? Um, Answer Len is that it is a mystery why this power attacks the people of God because we know that it does I believe there's another reason why the term mystery is used because if we refer back to Revelation 13 uh, we find that the, the combination of this power at the end of time it uses deceit and deception in order to to bring people to what it wants them to do and what it wants them to follow now remember this power claims to be a religious system so therefore it is a mystery as to how this power got in the situation that it's in and how what it's offering in its cup, instead of being the pure juice, if you will, of the gospel, is a false doctrine. And we know that uh, from our previous studies that it's based on several things. Number one, signs, wonders and miracles. And that these are all false, of course, and even fire coming down from heaven. So I see the word mystery as having a number of... Um, explanations it certainly is a power that attacks and kills the people of god but it's a mystery as to how a religious organization that claimed to be god's representative on earth has become so corrupt i'm just thinking how john must have felt when Mm. when um he was he's shown all this because it says there uh in verse six that I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. Obviously for the same reasons that Brenton was just saying, you know, how can a so-called religious power then turn around and kill someone that, you know, belongs or they believe, you know, is is um, God's children, mm. you know, and, and it's, it is a religious power we're talking about here. Mm. And I could imagine John was, you know, obviously his mouth would have been open, you know. How is this? How can this be? In an earlier program, when we were studying Revelation 13, we were talking about the powers that exist at the end of times, the sea beast, the land beast, the image to the beast. Now... It's um, fairly important, I think, to say who Bible expositors or many Bible expositors say that who these powers are. So the woman would be, the sea beast was, can anyone remember? 
the papal system? The papacy. Mm. Um, I prefer to call it the Roman Church and, um, and then the land beast. What was that one? That was the United States of America. Yes, it's a political power rather than a religious power. And then there was an image to the beast... And who was that identified as? Apostate Protestantism because they had fallen away from the position that they took originally of coming out of tradition and falsehood. Unfortunately, they've now gone back into it due to various factors. Yes. So I hope you know what we're talking about now, listeners. And this woman we would also include as the a part of the Roman Church. Ken, another name on the woman's forehead was Mother of Harlots. What's that mean? Well, this means that this power has others, in other words, apostate Protestants, practicing, teaching, enforcing deception, and involved with promoting error in place of truth. So in other words, the majority, if not all the Protestant churches out there that many, many years ago rebelled against all the lies have gone backwards and they're under her influence and I can't understand why I mean you have the word of God it says thus and thus and thus Mm -hmm. and yet they've put other things in its place well I I think perhaps again we we look at the way John looked at this when he was on the island of Patmos and he was in in, uh, he just could not believe what he's seen and this has all unfolded before him and here we are today we've got the word of God in front of us and uh, the only reason we know this is happening is because Satan is at the base of it all. Yes. One important thing is uh, when you ask that question, Len, why? Is because we turn our eyes from the only one who can sustain us, which is Jesus. We turn our eyes around and look at ourselves. And when we become powerful, when we are, you know, recognized in the world, we think about ourselves like Satan thought of himself in heaven. Look at me. I'm a important figure here. And that's the how he says in the Bible, when you start to be boastful of yourself and proud of yourself, the destruction is there. It often happens, doesn't it, in the case of, say, dictators. They might start out as humble people, but they end up doing most terrible atrocities because they have that power. Mm. Len, could I make just one or two comments on this? Um, firstly, you have a situation here where if I could appeal to our listeners, here's something to consider. When you attend church on the weekend, does your minister, does those who are in charge of your church, are they sharing, are they sharing with you from the Word of God? or is it man-made philosophies that you were hearing? Because I believe a lot of preaching these days is not Bible-based preaching. We believe, as a panel, that um, God's Word is where the power is, and therefore if you want people to change their ways, to repent, to become more like Jesus, you must present the Word of God, and most of all, Jesus. Now, here's a question that you can ask yourself. When I go to church... Do I come away from there feeling closer to Jesus or not? That's one question uh, that I believe that you can, you can okay. ask. A lot of people go to church and they come away on a high because of the music and so on. Well, music can be uplifting, but 
It must be the word of God. That must be, without any question, the basis of our faith. Now, we, just before this, we were talking about the mother of harlots. And I think the message has gotten through that this power we've identified as the Roman Church has many other church groups following in its wake and are teaching things that are not Bible-based. In other words, they're deception. Can you give some practical uh, things, some examples of some of these teachings that have sneaked into the Protestant church? Can anybody think of some? Well, I think what the first thing that comes to mind is that uh, they've changed the commandments of the Lord. Okay. Item. Okay. Immortality of the soul. All right. That, you know, we are eternal. Yes. But that will never happen until the Lord comes. But people believe when they die, they become... Anymore? And when we talk about that, also purgatory. You yeah. know, when you talk about hell. Yes. And everlasting torment. Yes, that's another one. It's not one. biblical. Mm. Uh, p- putting themselves in the place of God on earth. Okay. Brenton? I think another very important one that's particularly relevant to us today is this. Many churches these days do not teach what the Bible teaches regarding Christ's literal second coming. We have uh, things such as the rapture. We have all sorts of fanciful explanations where Christ himself said, my coming will be like the lightning shining from the east to the west. You will not be able to miss it. And I believe that that's a factor that needs to be presented to people to show them that Jesus is coming soon, literally, visibly, and he's wanting them to be in heaven with him. How frequently is that presented in messages uh, throughout Christendom? Yes, well, there's a big movement trying to explain Christ coming in a much different way Mm. than what the Bible Mm. actually teaches. And another one, if I could mention, um, uh, as uh, Ken was just talking about the commandments of God, one of the commandments of God, the only commandment which says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And uh, this power, and we talked about the intoxicating drink which she shares with with the other churches or the, the, the daughters, all of them are upholding the false Sabbath rather than uh, the Sabbath of God where we understand that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. Yeah. Forgiveness of sin is another, mm. you know, another where people believe that we have to go um, to a, um, a minister or a priest or through a person and whereas you know when Christ died and that veil was rent in two it virtually gave us then the permission to come boldly to the throne of God mm. and he is the only one that can forgive our sins we can direct people to him to forgive their sins mm. but we cannot forgive them No. Yeah. Okay. yeah I just wanted to add something I think Brenton said a little uh, a minute ago and that is, uh, I'm sure it's not been taught today in the churches that Jesus, in his own words, said, I come as a thief in the night when you least expect me. Okay, well, let's move on. Another title, Helen, on the harlot's head was Babylon the Great. Now, what's the significance of that title, do you think? 
Well, I believe similarities to Babylon from old. You know, if you if you go through and you look at the and look at the fall of Babylon as well, there is so many um, similarities. Babylon the Great in ancient times was an actually great city. You know, it was a world dominating power, controlled subordinate nations, and so will this power do the same. And also, Babylon was the centre of idolatry and false teachings and worship. Babylon united many people groups and imposed its own culture and it was responsible for enslaving many captives from its conquest and Babylon was rich it was a very rich city it lived extravagantly and uh, if we go back and study Daniel we can see also you know how great Babylon Babylon was I, I think it's important that it goes even further to the overthrow of Babylon you know the Euphrates River and that comes in at the end as well there's so many parallels to the old city mm. it was great yes, mm. so Babylon comes from a Greek name uh, which in Genesis 11 verse 1 to 9 is talking about the Babel it means confusion Mm-hmm. Babylon is used in uh, um, the book of Revelation about six times and it refers to historical Babylon and also spiritual Babylon. All right. Now it talks in verse 6 of the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints. Now if we identify this woman as this powerful religious group, is there any evidence of this particular religious group um, killing saints. Yes, there's there's lots of uh, evidence about this and you only have to go back in history and you look at what the uh, Roman Catholic Church did back then and there was millions of people killed and martyred because they would not change their worship of Jesus and the way the Roman Catholic Church wanted them to do it their way these people, the saints, as the Bible calls them, followed the word of God. Len, a uh, leading Anglican scholar by the name of Dr. H. Grattan Guinness, has estimated that a minimum of 50 million people were killed during the Middle Ages. It, the figure may in fact be much higher than that, but he estimates at least 50 million people lost their lives during this time because of one simple fact. They wanted to follow the word of God rather than the traditions of the church. No As I've actually heard the dark a, ages, a figure mm. of 150 million, somewhere well, between we'll right. 50 mm. and 100. And not just, uh, I mean, we can look this, uh, you know, back in history and, and it's uh, undoubtable, you know, uh, the things happen. But also the leadership, interesting enough, of the Roman church, they recognize that. And I remember when uh, one of the leaders, you know, which... Uh, uh, quite a few years ago, mentioned that that they uh, almost saying like they feel sorry of the uh, horrible things happen during the dark ages. Ledger, I know you've got something you'd love to share with us here. Yes, the harlot's dress counterfeits the attire of the high priest in mm-hmm. the Old Testament, mm-hmm. attire that included the colors purple scarlet and gold which we can find this also in Exodus chapter 28 verse 5 and 6 the blasphemous inscription on the harlot's forehead also replaces the priestly inscriptions which is holiness to the Lord on the meter of the high priest 
We can find also this in Exodus 20, chapter 28, verse 36 till 38. The cup in her hand reminds us of the vessels of the sanctuary from which Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, and his guests drank wine. We can find this in uh, Daniel chapter 5, verse 2 to 4. The cup in the harlot's hand uses the, the appearance of truth to conceal the wine. It means the falsehoods of Satan's end-time religious system in order to seduce the world away from God. But the harlot Babylon is further described as drunk with the blood of the saints, as the martyrs of Jesus who died as a result of their witness to Christ. The blood guiltiness links end-time Babylon to medieval apostate Christianity, which was led by the papacy and responsible for the deaths of millions of Christians who remained faithful to the gospel. Okay, thank you, Ledger. Now, Brenton, in verse 6, John records his reaction to this vision that he's just Mm. seen. Mm. What was that reaction? I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Why did he marvel with great amazement? I think first and foremost, remember this is a religious power. Uh, it's already, we've already mentioned mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. As if that's not bad enough, now we find that this power, this religious system, is actually become drunk not with her doctrines, they've become drunk with her power to destroy those who disagree with her um, her uh, understandings. Mm. And I think this is why uh, John is, is saying, I just can't believe this. <laughs> Here is this power that is persecuting God's people. I can't believe it. You know, something's really bothered me for a long time. Why has the Bible had so much to say about this power we are identifying as the Roman Church. I believe at the moment there is over 1.2 billion people who are adherents of the Roman Catholic Church and about 900 million people who are true to Islam. Why hasn't the Bible had anything, as far as I know, to say about Islam? The answer I believe is this Jesus set up his church the apostolic church taught the true pure doctrines of what Jesus instructed them but then paganism crept into the church and there were compromises made if you study the history of the church this is exactly what's happened then the church was really identified by a mix of true Christianity and paganism and the church which has continued under that guise is what we would call the Roman church so I see God a bit like this he's tracing the history of the church and how disappointed he must be that the true teachings of the church as recorded in the Bible have become so corrupted and therefore a big warning is put out rather than say against Islam which has 
some other ideas. Do you think that's fair enough? It's a good comment, Len, and uh, just to continue a little bit further on that, the pr big problem is when a power, a religious power like this, work under cover, if you like. It appears to be one thing, and in fact it's something else. Now, when you talk about even some other religions in the world, and there are three uh, monotheistic religions in the world, um, some of them, who knows, and I'm not here to say uh, one thing or the other, they are supporting their view because what that's what they believe. And maybe at some point in time they will come to God, understanding what God wants. But this power doesn't have an intention of uh, coming back to God. This power, it's playing with, with uh, the deceive. It's undercover, <laughs> almost. I can't find the better words to, de to describe it. Mm. Okay. Len, just a quick comment on uh, this particular uh, thing that you've said about um, Romanism and Islam. It's very interesting. Any um, student of history will find that when the Protestant Reformation came about, there was an order made by the church at the time to Charles V to destroy the Protestant religion in its infancy. It is a fact that whenever Rome was about to set its mind to trying to destroy this uh, Protestant Reformation, they suddenly found they had to fight Islam because Islam had invaded Europe. It went as far as Spain. And you'll find that frequently, whenever it looked as though Charles was getting his act together, so to speak, you'll find that whenever that happened, here there would be another occasion where we would uh, he would have to go off and fight the Islamic hordes. I believe God used Islam as a, as a counterbalance to allow the Protestant Reformation to develop. Well, that's an interesting thought. Helen, the angel goes on to explain more to John. Could you quickly read Revelation 17, verses 7 to 13? Yes, I can. Again, from the Life Application Bible, it says, Why are you so amazed? The angel asked. I will tell you the mysteries of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive, but isn't now, and yet he will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names are not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at the reappearance of this beast who had died. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. They also represent seven kings. Hmm. Five kings have already fallen, the sixth now reigns, and the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was, but is no longer, is the eighth king. He is like the other seven, and he too is headed for destruction. The ten horns of the beast are ten kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast, and they will all agree to give him their power and authority. I think it's just amazing that here we've got the meaning of some of those symbols, and that's what the Bible does. It interprets, doesn't it? Mm. And if you take it bit by bit, it's it's really fascinating. Yeah. Now, we've spent a lot of time on various things, and now, Ken, in the, uh, what Helen just read, it talks about this beast as being was is not and is to come. Can you briefly explain that to us? Yes, in uh, 538 uh, Justine declared that the church then was going to rule over everything but not the Roman Catholic Church 
and in 1798 the uh, the Pope was exiled uh, so the Vatican lost all its power and control at that time until 1929 when the Vatican reappeared and became an independent state okay all right Brenton um, would you read the first part of verse 14 just the first sentence it says this and it's quite an interesting comment it says that these will make war with the lamb uh-huh. who's the lamb Christ I would like also to mention this this, this tripartite phrase that we we've seen here it's uh, it's a counterfeit of the divine name Yahweh we can find it in Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 which refers to the father in verse 1 it says grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come so um, this it's um, Satan is trying to take place of of Jesus of God in this in this situation also okay Helen without reading the verses but we'll refer to them chapter 17 verses 15 to 8 it talks about this alliance between the woman and the beast what happens to it well it was an unholy alliance to start with and they actually turn that that alliance goes to become a grand breakup in the end when they realize they've been deceived and they turn on on the beast yes mm. it, it's not going to continue forever no no it isn't and if you were to read those verses 17 uh, chapter 17 15 to 18 it's it's not a very nice thing that they wanted to do but it just shows what happens when their eyes suddenly became open and they were enlightened, if you like, and they turned on it. Yeah. Because they Ledger. were deceived. I mean, none of us like to be deceived. No. And, no. Um, yeah. yeah. Ledger, would you read Revelation 17, verse 14? They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called chosen and faithful followers we observe here that the assurance is already uh, given that victory is with the Lord and Satan his agencies and followers will be defeated for sure hallelujah Amen. Yeah. <laughs> yes. there's a great conflict between Christ and Satan we've read about some of Satan's agencies but here is the good news the good news is that Christ will be victorious mm. these other agencies yes. and Satan will be overthrown and just quickly I want to say this people don't trust man trust God because he's promising us uh, and assure us of the victory my brother one of my brothers always said to me this you know I'll go where the majority will go Sometimes people believe that if there were multitudes of people going in one way, it must, must be, be the right thing to, to do. Just keep in mind that the true path which goes to everlasting life, it's a narrow one. And the gate, it's a smaller gate. Make sure that you find that way and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus rather than to be led by the multitudes and the popular views. Well, that was quite a good conclusion, and there are other things that I'd like us to share today, but time is against us. So I think we'd better close with prayer now, and thank you for listening, and thank you, panel, for sharing. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of reading your word again this morning. We thank you, Lord, that those who are with you are called the called, 
the chosen and the faithful. And my prayer, Lord, is not only for ourselves as a panel, but for all those who are listening to this Bible study, that we will say in our heart, Lord, I want to be amongst the called, the chosen and the faithful. Jesus is inviting us right now to accept him, to accept his truth as we have studied. Lord, may we be on the side of those who are with the Lamb, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, everyone. May God bless you. And to our listeners, don't forget, keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Just if I could put a little promo in here. Um, if you'd like to join a group Bible study rather than just sitting and listening on the radio, then every Saturday morning at Adventist churches all over the country, you can join in with them and they have one, usually starting around about 9.30 on a Saturday morning, although it would be worthwhile to check out the times because some churches do have different times. Here in Adelaide, there are a number of churches where you could attend, but if I could just point out three of them. Down in the south of Adelaide, there's a, ch- a larger church called Morford Vale on Pimpala Road, and they start at 9.30 in the morning. In the city, in the CBD on Angus Street, there is Adelaide City Church, and they also start at 9.30 in the morning, and perhaps towards the north in Paravista, they start at 10, but their Bible discussion starts around about half past 11, and you'd be welcome to join and sort of put some faces to the discussion. Very glad to see you as you come along. <laughs> 